American soccer fans, welcome to episode 60 of the Stars and Stripes FC podcast. Donald Wine here, manager of Stars and Stripes FC, your source for all things U.S. national teams, the players that comprise them, and everything else surrounding the game of soccer in America. It was fun last week to be on a few other shows discussing the men's national team and the women's national team. We had Football with Grant Wall, the We Are Soccer Show, and Five Stripes Tonight. So find those wherever you get your podcast. I thank those hosts for having me on last week. It was a lot of fun to do that ahead of this World Cup qualifying window that we just endured. We are back after the completion of that window. I was at all three matches in El Salvador, in Nashville for the Canada match, and then at San Pedro Sula against Honduras. So we're going to discuss all of that. We have a very special guest that will be on with me in a little bit to discuss his take on the three matches as well. He's my buddy. He is a co-host with me on another show, the World of CONCACAF podcast, and he also was at the three matches alongside me. So uh, we will answer some of his questions, or I'll ask him some questions about how it looked from his eyes in the stands. Let's get into all of it. And I want to, there's obviously a lot that we can talk about and uh, kudos to everyone who is on the staff here at Stars and Stripes FC. We had a lot of content over the last few days about these matches. So if you have not caught up yet, please go to starsandstripesfc.com and catch up with everything Uh, These guys have been doing great work and putting in overtime, and I really appreciate their efforts while I was on the road. And I want to begin first by just talking about the window as a whole, because I look at this window as a whole. I think a lot of people were kind of caught up in the match-by-match process. And for me, I don't have enough glucose in in my body to deal with the ups and downs like that. I wanted to look at this as a window because – that is how we should treat these things. With three matches in seven days, it's too hard to look at one match and overreact, then look at another match and overreact to that, and then look at the third match and overreact to that. Looking at the window as a whole, I think we are still on solid ground. And now, of course, this is where people would say, but we drew at El Salvador, we drew against Canada, we were down to Honduras. Yes, all of that is true. But at the end of the day, at the end of this window, we are in second place. We have five points. In second place, we're tied with Canada. We're tied with Panama. Mexico is just a couple points above us with seven points. But we're in good shape. Where if you had just started to write this obituary after the Canada match, you would have not taken into account this fact that now we have won against Honduras, even though we had one of the worst halves in the history of this team that I have seen since I have started watching this team. But the idea is the windows need to speak for themselves, not the individual matches. As I've mentioned before, World Cup qualifying was never going to be just a straight, paved, clear road. It was always going to be curved. It was always going to be unpaved or unbeaten or or blazing a trail, cobblestones, gravel, all of these things, potholes. There's always going to be something in moments where this team will slip up. And they did. And it didn't take long because a lot of people thought they slipped up in the first match by drawing at El Salvador. I want to tell you, drawing on the road is hard enough. Winning on the road is hard enough. We haven't won that many road games in CONCACAF World Cup qualifying, period. Over the course of our history, look back. It's not like we're just slaying people on the road. We always lived by the old adage of winning our games at home 
and getting some sort of result on the road, whether it be a win or a draw. And that would have been enough to qualify us for these World Cups. So getting a draw on the road is not that we played for a draw, but a draw is okay. When you look at the micro, you look at just that one game, drawing on the road at El Salvador, a place where traditionally we don't play that well, is okay. Clint Dempsey on the pregame show or the postgame show, I want to say, after El Salvador, mentioned this fact. He went to El Salvador three times during World Cup qualifying. He drew twice and he lost once. So he never actually saw a win in San Salvador and he played three times down there. So for people to think that we were just going to waltz in and beat El Salvador 8 nothing and, and walk out of there, that was a little too much. But could they have played better? Absolutely. And I think El Salvador is probably counting that one as a win because they said, hey, this team was supposed to come in and, and destroy us and we were able to hold them. But it's not like El Salvador was pushing the envelope. It was us pushing the envelope and El Salvador trying to hang on. I do want to mention one part that I enjoyed about El Salvador. And a lot of people saw the national anthem when it was played and them belting out the national anthem. And you've probably seen those videos all over Twitter and social media. That didn't really give it justice because that anthem was absolutely fantastic. It was loud as hell. It was ear splitting with flyovers and fireworks going off and everyone singing at the top of their lungs. It was a sight to see, but that is not the best moment I will take from El Salvador from that match. The moment that I will take was when we as fans, we had about 60 or 70 fans that went down to El Salvador for that first game. And we had a police escort to the stadium because they didn't want us to get sidetracked. They didn't want us to be bothered as we entered the stadium and they want to make sure that we were safe in and out. And we were fine with that. But to that point, we had seen no issues from any of the El Salvadoran people. Everyone there was absolutely fantastic. It was nice. As we enter the stadium, we hear a couple of people start clapping and, you know, in the, gesture of good fun. When, when someone claps, you kind of clap back and give them a thumbs up and you say, you know, Buena suerte, good luck. But as the rest of the stadium figured out what they were clapping for, the entire stadium, as we entered the stadium to get to our section, as we were escorted in by police, they gave us a standing ovation. The whole stadium. Never seen that at a World Cup qualifier before on the road. We've seen a lot of people be very, very cordial to us. We've seen a lot of friendly banter back and forth. We've seen people be, you know, be mean to us, you know, call us names, whatever that is. We've seen it all. But I've never seen anyone give us a standing ovation. And so commendations and kudos to everyone down there in El Salvador that was at that match because it was a lot of fun. Everyone was taking pictures. It was all love. It was beautiful because they have not been in, in a hex or hexagonal. <clears throat> They have not been in the final round of World Cup qualifying in quite a while. So they were excited to be back. They were excited that we were there. They were excited to have their game because if you guys remember about a month ago, the FIFA and CONCACAF tried to kind of take it away from them and give it to the United States as a kind of a home game away from home. But it was beautiful to walk into that stadium and just feel that love and, and really just say, hey, yes, our teams are going at each other. Yes, we're going to be chanting for our team. You're going to be chanting for your team. But at the end of the day, we're all here for the same thing. We're all here to have a great time and to cheer on our team. And we hope that it's a great game. So that was really fun. I think that's something that everyone who is El Salvador will take away amongst other things. But 
that is going to be one of the key moments, I think, from a fan perspective, entering that stadium at Estadio Cuscatlan and just seeing everyone give us a standing ovation and welcome us with the biggest of welcomes. That's how you do it. So hats off to everyone down there in El Salvador for that. It was a lot of fun. I think the draw, whatever, we, we take away uh, the, the one point. We then moved to Nashville. And the great thing about my friend Eric uh, is he was one of the people who helped run events for the American Outlaws from the chapter level in Nashville. And it was a party. For those of you who are in Nashville, Nashville was electric. And it was a great time. We're not, we'll discuss the game in a second. But the absolute incredible atmosphere that Nashville put on from the night before events for U.S. soccer and American Outlaws to the tailgating to people just walking down the street in U.S. soccer gear instead of college gear. Remind you, this was Labor Day weekend. This was the start of college football season. Week one, people usually show out in, you know, wearing Tennessee gear or Vandy gear, Alabama or whoever you support. But there's a lot of U.S. soccer jerseys on. There's a lot of U.S. soccer shirts on. There's a lot of American Outlaw shirts on. There was a lot of people there for this match and only for this match. And they were supporting and they were representing. So everyone who was in Nashville, I hope you guys all had a great time. I hope you guys stayed safe as I did, but I also just want to commend you guys because that was, that contributed to the atmosphere and the atmosphere inside the stadium was awesome. The play on the field may not have been as awesome and people may not have liked the fact that we had to settle for a one, one draw with Canada. But everyone in that stadium was ready to go. All the fans were at full throat. They were cheering. You might can still hear it in my voice. That's probably because I went to all three games. But that energy was electric. And that's what every World Cup qualifier should be like. Everyone who is a fan, whether you're a diehard supporter or a casual fan, or if it's your first match or 100th match, bring that passion. Because this team is clearly going to feed off of it. And they're going to need it at times because this team is young. and. That is kind of why some people may view the Canada game as disappointing because we didn't get that win. We had the 1-0 lead at a point. Brendan Harrison scores the goal. And then six minutes later, they give it all back with a Kyle Laren goal. You want to win your home games. It's straight up. You want to win your home games and you want to be able to show that you can adjust when the team that you're facing throws a counter punch. And I don't think Greg Berhalter and the players did that. I think that was the issue is that they didn't throw that counter punch. When, when, when someone tries to throw a punch at you, you throw a punch back. And when they throw a punch back, you throw another punch. We threw a punch, Canada threw a punch back, and we didn't respond. And I think that was the, the, the problem with that game. There's a lot of other issues that we'll talk about in a second, but I want to shift to something that really hung over the heads of everything at that match. And that was the suspension of Weston McKinney. He was removed from the team for a violation of team protocol, COVID protocol, whatever you want to call it. He apparently, according to ESPN, violated the protocols by going out in Nashville one night and also bringing an unauthorized person back to his room another night while in Nashville and was subsequently removed from the team, sent back to Italy after this Canada game. So we didn't find out about this until a few hours before the Canada match. And that obviously took the wind out of the sails a bit for fans because Weston McKinney is not just a guy. He is one of the guys. And 
there's a lot going back and forth about who was with and what he was doing. Honestly, none of that's important. What's important is that Weston McKinney has to know that he needs to step up for his team. He needs, we need him to be there for his team and whatever that takes. And I know this happens all the time, right? You know, stepping out of after curfew, breaking team protocol, you know, bringing people back to the room, whatever you want to call it, that happens on every level of professional sports. Every sport does this. Every sport deals with this ad nauseum. So it's not that he's doing something that is so abhorrent that he can never play for the team again. That's absolutely not true. And I think what is said between him and the team should remain between him and the team and the coaching staff, and they will welcome him back next month. And he hopefully will be ready to go. We'll have learned his lesson and he's going to focus and be ready to go. But Weston McKinney is one of the linchpins of this team, this young, young team. He's one of the guys that has the most experience. He's one of the guys that has one of the biggest statures. He's one of the guys that brings this team together. And so it was clear that this team missed Weston McKinney against Canada. And also in that first half against Honduras, where we had to just kind of watch this team play its worst half, like I said, probably since the Costa Rica away game in 2016. So Weston, hopefully the lesson is learned there. Hopefully we don't have to speak about what happened or why it happened or who it happened with, because none of that is our business. People may think it's fun to talk about, but really is none of our business. And if he's stepping out with consenting as a consenting adult with another consenting adult, that is between those two. And we don't have any say in that. And no one should be talking about how it's going to impact the team. What is impacting the team is that he did break a team rule, whatever that rule was, and he was not there. And that is what is disappointing. That's where we need to say, Weston, do what you need to do to make sure that you're on that field and professionalism rising. You were able to play because we need you for all these games. We need you to be there. And missing him on Sunday against Canada was palpable in the stadium. And, and when things didn't went wrong, it was clear that there was been something there that could have brought everything together. And that something was Weston McKinney. So we'll hopefully see him next month. That's the last I will say about his transgressions, whatever they may be, but he will be, he was missed and he will be back at some point. And when he comes back, I know he's going to come back with a new head and new life and is ready can be ready to contribute. I now want to move on to Honduras, and there's something that I want to discuss before we go to the game that I think is important to discuss, and it's something that I want to get off my chest. In the day or two leading up to the game, a lot, it, it, this didn't really trickle down to Honduras because I, I was there, and it didn't really trickle down until kind of after the game was over. But there was a couple of articles that kind of tried to paint the picture of what it's like to go to San Pedro Sula into the Estadio Olimpico Metropolitano to face Honduras in a World Cup qualifier if you are from the United States. And it really painted Honduras in a really terrible light. It, it just the it talked about the atmosphere. It called their fans animals. They called their fans uh, saying they were throwing severed animal heads onto the field, that their grass is grown all the way to the, it's up to the shin, where it's unplayable, and all of these things that are, done in the form of gamesmanship to try and give Honduras the edge and people throwing stuff at the players, you know, San Pedro Sula being super unsafe, 
And I'm here to tell you, all of that was bullshit. All of it. Because everyone in Honduras treated us terrifically, just like El Salvador. In, in El Salvador, there was these articles, too, about how, how dangerous it is. And people were telling us, don't leave the hotel. Don't go too far. Don't go out at night. Everyone in El Salvador, everyone in Honduras was nothing but awesome to us. At that stadium, everyone was passionate about their team, but there were no severed heads being thrown onto the field. Yes, did they throw water? Did they throw cups? Yes, they absolutely did. But at their own team, after their own team imploded in the second half, El Salvador, there was it was all love. It was all love between us and Honduras. People were taking pictures with us. They were, you know, high fiving us, wishing us luck into the stadium, congratulating us as we left the stadium. Yeah, there's, you know, in El Salvador, there's a couple of people playfully bantering with our bus by, you know, tapping on it as we came in, but it's because they thought we were the team, right? They were trying to give that edge, but never at any point did I feel unsafe while I was down there. Never at any point did anybody who was with us feel like they couldn't go anywhere or do what they wanted because they felt unsafe. Everyone there gave us a great, great welcome. Everyone showed us a great time. It was all love down there. So I, I hope that those people out there who are writing articles like that be better about really painting the picture about what it is like to go to some of these games. Sure, it's intimidating in the stadium. Absolutely. Because everyone, every single person in that stadium is passionate about their team. And you see the national anthems. You see the chants. You see the screens. You see the cheering. That is Okay. Because that's what we as a nation, honestly, a lot of our fans, we strive to be. We strive to be passionate. We strive to create an imposing atmosphere so that when that team that we're facing steps off the bus, they realize they are not in Kansas anymore and they are not, <laughs> they're going to have to click their heels more than three times to get back to where they're going, right? We want that atmosphere to be intimidating, imposing, but never disrespectful. And I feel like those articles that painted Honduras and El Salvador in a bad light we're completely disrespectful, and I think that needs to be better by everyone in this industry that we call journalism. You have to be better about painting the picture that you see because that was not what was experienced, and that's not sh that should not be what people take from this experience that I had and several others had by going to these matches in El Salvador and Honduras. So having said that, let me talk about the actual game in Honduras. I've mentioned this before, but that first half, we had a problem. And there was a couple of things you could talk about. But the first thing I thought was, I don't want to see us play out of the back anymore because we're not good at it. And at a certain point, the other team figures out what we're doing and they can pounce on it. And that's what Honduras did several times in the first half. They just waited for us to play it back to a certain position. And then that's when they tried to take the ball and go on a counter. And they were high pressing us because they knew where the ball was going and they knew who was, who was getting the ball. They knew what runs we were making. They knew what passes we were trying to do. And they were one step ahead every single time. And at the same time, we didn't have an answer for it. We came out in uh, three, five, two, it seemed like in the first half with Tyler Adams on the right. We had Kellen Acosta in the middle, you know, we had a three, a three back with a couple of guys that were not in their natural positions down the wings. We had people running into each other. We had people who just forgot how to pass the ball. It was terrible. 
it was absolutely awful. And I don't know why we started in that. I really don't because that was a really bad way to start a game where you need to win. You need to go with what you know. And it could be because the personnel was that wasn't there. It could be because, you know, Gio Reyna was out. Wes McKinney was out. Zach Stefan was out. Uh, you, it may be because of that, but you cannot walk into the unknown playing as an unknown. You got to play with what you know. You got to do what got you there. And we didn't do that in the first half. Now, I will say to everyone's credit on that staff, Greg Verhalter and the rest of the coaching staff, they figured it out. They decided to abandon what they were doing. They brought in three subs, and those subs made the difference in the game. Anthony Robinson, I thought, I honestly, he was my player of the game because he came in and made an immediate impact, and he was electric the entire second half. Brendan Harrison came in at the beginning of the second half, he scored a goal. Sebastian Legit came on at the beginning of the second half. He scored a goal. And the man in the middle finally was able to calm down and get into his roots, and people were feeding the ball. And that is the train, ladies and gentlemen, Ricardo Pepe. Ricardo Pepe had an amazing game. He scores the game winner. He assists on the first goal to Anthony Robinson. He assists on the third goal to Brendan Aronson. He did it all in that second half, and it was a marked change in the flow and the urgency and just the intensity that that team came out with. And so it's because they went back to their basics. It went back to what they know. Guys were playing in natural positions. Tyler Adams moved back in the middle, keep them there forever. But these guys were able to turn the, turn the page, put the first half behind them and play like they, we know they can play. And so for the 25 of us that were in the stands, it was amazing to be a part of that second half, to watch that, to witness them just, just the sea change of how they play in the first half and just going straight to domination in the second half. They, of course, they didn't, you know, it wasn't a perfect second half. They had a couple of slip-ups and, you know, a couple of chances for Honduras, but they were able to stop anything that came their way and they were able to fight back. Again, if Honduras tried to throw a punch, we would give out two. If, if, if we fell to the floor, we got back up. That is what you need to see when you're on the road in CONCACAF. That's how you get to the World Cup through World Cup qualification. <clears throat> That's how you get to the World Cup through CONCACAF qualification. That's how you have to do it. You have to be as intense, if not more intense, than the team that you're facing, whether you're at home or on the road. On the, at home, you'll have the home crowd behind you. But on the road, you have to realize that the only people in that building are maybe less than 100 American fans and that squad. And you have to roll with them and do the job that you could get done back home. So that is how it's going to work. And I'm glad they figured out how to make it work because that turned what was going to be a situation where people were talking about firing Greg Berhalter to now we're in second place. And I think that is a much better situation to be in. We're in second place. In the standings, in the octagonal, we have two home games coming up next month. We have a road game at Panama, who almost beat Mexico at home. But we have an opportunity to stack some points and create some separation. Now we have a new lease on life. Now we know what that intensity needs. And now this group, this young group, reminder, 
when we stepped out in the field against El Salvador, only two players on that field had ever played in a World Cup qualifier. Two. And now we have a group of 25 guys who have that requisite experience. They can take that with them, and now they won't be as green to this atmosphere and to this experience. So that's where I take from this three window. We're in solid shape. Did things go wrong? Absolutely. But over the whole, there's no need to panic. We are still in great shape. And the only thing we can do is keep going up and keep improving and keep getting guys healthy. And let's see where next month takes us. Let's pause here. We got more to discuss from this window. But on the other side of this break, we're going to get into the world of CONCACAF and how the U.S. men's national team did during these first three matches from someone who had the stadium vantage point, just like myself, for all three of these games. So stay tuned. We'll be right back. We are back on the Stars and Stripes FC podcast, and we have a special guest this week here to discuss the first window of World Cup qualifying for the men's national team is Eric Schmitz. Eric is the co-host alongside Jonathan Slape and myself of the World of CONCACAF podcast, which, as the title clearly explains, focuses on soccer throughout the region of North and Central America and the Caribbean. The World of CONCACAF podcast also does a laser focus on the country from the confederation each episode and eric naturally was with me at all three of these matches during this most recent window in san salvador nashville and san pedro sula so eric what's up man welcome to the show what's going on it's been so long since i've seen your face it's been a full 24 hours and i already missed you so uh which is why i had to get you on the show uh but i want to start we're going to talk about all three games but let's start with the first one el salvador just really, I mean, uh, we're on the road. We go down to Estadio Cuscatlan. We get the scoreless draw. How did you think we did to start the window? And what did you see from your spot literally next to me in the stands? <laughs> uh, I mean, overall, I think the result is a little disappointing. Uh, coming off Nations League, coming off the Gold Cup, like, U.S. was ranked 10th in the world. Like, it's been a really good year. And with the start of World Cup qualifying, you would have to say that away to El Salvador is the most winnable away game in this round. And Greg Berhalter rolled out a lineup that was almost cynical, just kind of acknowledging that he's saving some guys for the Canada game. And for me, that was a little disappointing because I figured with the way everything happened in the last World Cup qualifying run, with where things are at now, like come out and make a statement. And they definitely weren't putting the best team out there. And they seemed very tentative uh, to start. It did seem like the environment did shake them up a little bit. I mean, I'm sure they were not prepared for fireworks to be going off for the first 10 minutes of the game, like right right right. over the stadium. Uh, I'm sure they were not mentally prepared for the field condition or how into that crowd into the game that crowd was i know they were expecting a reduced capacity crowd and that was not it like that was in a way qualifier in concaf and you had a lot of guys like conrad de la fuente like it's cool like got him in like he's definitely earning his way into the team but 
Was he ready for something like that? I don't know. I mean, one would argue he was the most ready uh, from his club experience so far. Oh, yeah, I forgot about that. Um, yeah. But yeah, I, I see your point. I, I think the, the real question. So a lot of people, you know, when you look at qualifying as a whole over the course of history, we haven't won that many road games. And so the old adage was win all your games at home, get the draw, get the result on the road, win or draw. And, and so walking away with a draw should have been OK. Do you think that was OK to start the window? I mean, in the end, a draw on the road is an okay way to start the window. Like I said, I think El Salvador might have been the most winnable away match. And coming off not making the World Cup, coming off winning the Nations League, winning Gold Cup, like if you're going to come out and establish that, yeah, we're back, you want to start off with a win. And I don't know if they went full fully into it thinking like that. And, I mean, just the way they generally played, like there wasn't a lot of uh, aggression. There really wasn't the desperation that you need to compete in CONCACAF, especially in World Cup qualifying. Like there needs to be desperation. You have to outwork because it's a it's a fist fight, you know? Yeah, exactly. So uh, I want to shift gears because you Mm -hmm. had a rare opportunity. You were helping to lead events for a World Cup qualifier in your home city of Nashville as you were on the leadership for the American Outlaws chapter there. So we obviously are a few days removed from that particular weekend. So reflect on it as a whole. What was that experience like for you? I mean, it feels like a blur now uh, just because there's so much going on. Um, Typically getting to go to games, like the good part is hanging out with your friends, drinking, you know, a lot, going to the game, like having a good time. And I mean, to have everyone have a good time, like there's work that needs to get done. And I mean, I give credit to all of the people from AO, like the national group that shows up at every game, yourself included, because like, it's not always just sitting there having a good time because you want to make sure everyone else has fun. And that's somebody's first game. You want them to show up and realize, wow, this is awesome. I want to keep doing this. So it's, it was a good experience. I hadn't been as hands-on in the past when we've hosted games as this one. Uh, but we put a lot of work into it. We had a good group of volunteers um, locally that helped with everything. Uh, we had our night before party at our chapter bar, uh, Tailgate Brewery Music Row uh, here in Nashville. And they were awesome to us. Um, They've generally been really good to us um, since we've been there. Um, But they put together a special seltzer for us. In the past, they've brewed special beers specifically Mm -hmm. for us. So we had an American Outlaws seltzer, the Yanks Are Back seltzer. And uh, it was delicious, first of all. Everyone seemed to enjoy it, but it's nice when you can offer something unique to everyone coming into town for the game. Yeah, absolutely. And speaking of that, I mean, the vibe was just incredible, Uh, especially. I mean, you think about it. it. Nashville is a southern city. It's Labor Day weekend. It's college football season, the beginning of college football season where we normally dominate the scene. And you saw a ton of U.S. soccer jerseys and shirts walking around town. What was what does that mean to you as a resident of that city to see your town swell to get behind this team on such an important weekend and for such an important match? 
I mean, it's great. I mean, we've been very fortunate that U.S. soccer likes coming to Nashville. Um, we've been able to have a bunch of games here over the last few years. Um, this was no different in the fact that people showed up. They announced over 43,000 at the game. But, yeah, you could see everyone wearing U.S. gear at the game. It was a heavily partisan U.S. crowd. Like, people were into it. People were doing chants. The whole lower bowl was standing for most of the game. Like, it was so encouraging to see that. On the other hand, it's like, okay, everyone, all these people showed up. They were in U.S. gear. It's like, yeah, we got a game Wednesday, too. You guys going to be uh, tuning in for that? Um, mm-hmm. It's like you hope that it's not just one-off, like, let's go do this once for people. It's, uh, oh, this is awesome. This is a team I need to follow. I need to keep up with this because – I mean, that's you go to any other country in the world, anytime the national team's playing, it looks like that. Whether the game is there or not, people are passionate about their national team. And that's what we want here. Yeah, absolutely. And and as you know, FIFA is doing their World Cup sites visits next week. Nashville is one of them. They've always had great attendances at U.S. matches over the years. You know, a lot of people go back to that Gold Cup game in 2017, 2019. Fourth of July friendly in 2015, where you guys set records for you know attendance in the state of Tennessee for soccer. Do you think this week helped in boosting your chances to get World Cup matches in 2026? I mean, I don't know if it's going to boost any. I mean, Nashville, it's an event. It's a big event city. Uh, you see it from when we hosted the NFL draft a couple years ago. They shut down Broadway, and it was a giant party for a couple days. Like you can see that and imagine that being like a fan fest type thing. Uh, I mean, you've got had the draft, you had uh, CMA fest, which brings a hundred thousand people to town every year. A couple of years ago when the Nashville predators were in the Stanley cup final, we had 50 to 60,000 people downtown watching the games on big screens. Like people show up when they know it's something special and it's going to be a good time. And if there's one thing that Nashville knows, it's how to have a good time. Uh, so, I mean, yeah, it really depends sure. on... <laughs> yeah. It's hard to come here and not have fun. But it all really depends on what FIFA is looking for. And, I mean, outside of the money aspect of it, FIFA can't go wrong coming here. I just don't know if they're going to think the stadium is up to code. Obviously, there's been discussions about renovating because... In most cases, when a country's hosting a World Cup, you're building brand new stadiums for it. Mm-hmm. Wh- whatever they're going to get used for after the fact, it usually doesn't matter. But with this World Cup, where it's all existing infrastructure, uh, I wonder how much effort or pressure FIFA is going to put on to make these places into palaces for this event. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so we've talked about the good stuff about Nashville. Nashville was a great, great time. Mm-hmm. The game, the game, the game, the game, <laughs> yeah. as they would say, uh, was not as entertaining. It did start off entertaining. It, I mean, it was a slugfest in the first half. Brendan Anderson scored the goal in the second half. Everyone thinks we're off and running. Only for six minutes later for Kyle Laren to equalize. And, you know, we end up with a 1-1 draw against Canada. Give me your thoughts on that game fr- from the game perspective. Was that a draw that you thought was kind of a draw snatch from defeat of victory, or do you think we kind of escaped with a draw at that point? I don't know if escape with a draw, just because 
I don't think Canada was super threatening. I don't think Canada had much of a like they were bunkering and focusing on counterattack. And we've got Alfonso Davies. That's a great game plan. Like it worked. They got their result because that's what they did. But I don't think, and I mean, some of this has to do with the fact that the U.S. probably went into that game with a game plan that included Weston McKinney, and not having him was noticeable. Um, there just was not a lot of creative enthusiasm in the midfield. Um, and when Canada was bunkering, you just didn't get a lot of chances. I don't think Greg Berhalter did enough to change things up early enough to try to get a win out of that. Um, but Canada came to play. They played their game, and the U.S. was just way too tentative. They knocked around the ball around the back way too much. There wasn't enough effort to create incisive passes. Um, I would have made some adjustments to how they lined up, but it's better than a loss. Um, but it's disappointing that you're starting off your home schedule without three points, which is you got to win your home games. That's the way into the World Cup. And they didn't do that. So it was disappointing in the fact that a lot of people are going to walk away from that game thinking, oh, they tied. This was this sucks. It's like, mm-hmm. no, that's not that's not what we want. Like, y'all had a good time. We're, we're this is just the start of things. For sure. And now we get to this third game and, and you were in Honduras. So, mm-hmm. you know, I have to ask you two questions about the actual game. So the first I thought one. it was going to be about I thought it was going to be about power chicken, but we'll get to that. Oh, later. well, power chicken. We'll get to that. We'll get to the <laughs> we'll get to power chicken. Uh, but the first one is halftime. The uh-huh. U.S. is down one nothing. They've played probably the worst half that, in my opinion, that we've seen since the Costa Rica away match in 2016. What are your thoughts during this that intermission, that halftime? What are your thoughts when you're down one nothing and everything looks like it is not going to be good in San Pedro Sula? I'm just sitting there thinking we're gonna we might miss the World Cup again. Like you're sitting on two points down at half away, and you're like, what is do these guys realize what's at stake here? Like there was just not enough intensity, there was not enough enthusiasm. Like Honduras was carrying the play. There wasn't a lot of there wasn't a lot of good things coming out of that first half and Greg Berhalter rolled out a lineup that I have issues with like Tyler Adams should never be anything other than the six unless you're in severely desperate circumstances and you don't start a game that way um oddly enough like once things changed around the team looked noticeably better um but yeah like going into an environment like that being down like it's intimidating when you're surrounded by tens of thousands of opposing fans you're rolling with like 20 people in the stands you got a couple security guards there and your team's getting their ass kicked it's like Mm -hmm. what are we doing here what is going to happen like how are we going to get out of this how are we going to get to the world cup and yeah it was a gut check moment so I sat there with my bag of water, just thinking, <laughs> thinking, thinking about what what went wrong here. 
Yeah. Well, okay. So that happened. We're, we're obviously upset. We're angry. You're, you're thinking, you know, here we go again, basically. And then that second half happened. So how did your emotions shift during the second half? Was it shock or was it like you, you felt like they're like, okay, this is what we expect from you. Yeah. I mean, I would say like I was already in shock, but once Anthony Robinson scored, like that was almost like the relief like getting the weight off your shoulder. It's like, okay, it's tied. We can get out of here with something. Like there, there's some hope here. And as the half wore on and Honduras was threatening, Matt Turner had that huge save. I think it was like the 64th. See, the thing is like, it was really hard to get context as to when things happen because there was no scoreboard in the stadium. In the stadium, yes. So you have no idea when anything happened. Like I had to look at the box score after find out like how soon into the second half Robinson scored. But Turner was holding the fort, and then once they got that second goal, it's like, oh my god, like we can probably win this game. Like you didn't even think you were home free at that point, but once that second goal went in, it's like, okay, okay, we're at least getting out of here with a draw. We can hold down the fort here. We can get out of here with a result, and then. The half kept playing on. The home crowd started turning on their own team. And once that third goal went in, it's like, okay, sweet. We got our three points. We're sitting on five for the window. Things are okay now. And and so you think everything's okay. I mean, when you look at the window as a whole, five points, road draw, home draw, a road win come, come from behind. Do you feel good about where they stand right now in the standings? They're currently tied for second. Do you think, I mean, obviously there were points lost, but over the grand scheme of things, do you think, okay, this is a a decent window for the United States? I mean, I feel like five points was the minimum. Like you needed at least five points. Otherwise it was a disaster. Um, I mean, going into next month, you've got two home games. So you assume you're going to be able to rack up some points there. Um, We assumed you're going to win your home game. You assume that you might be able to get a result of a win in El Salvador and just the way they got the points, it's not necessarily reassuring because each game you see flaws and you see issues that, I mean, even going game to game, like look at the lineup Berhalter rolled out in, the, in Honduras. You're like, well, did he really adjust well enough off those first two games? Um, is he going to be able to adjust in October? You don't know, but... They're at least in a good position now um, to not fall behind the pack, uh, because I mean you don't have to you don't have to beat Mexico, you don't have to finish first in the group. You just have to finish top three, so you you're mm-hmm. not racing everybody. So you mentioned earlier the fans and just kind of you know the intimidating factor that the atmosphere can provide on the road. You traveled to all three games, including away trips to El Salvador and Honduras. Now, I, I don't know if you saw this while you were down there because we didn't really discuss it, but social media was just in a big debate the past few days with writers talking, taking shots at the behavior of the home fans in each of those countries. When the U.S. comes to town, they talk about you know calling them animals, saying it's unsafe for Americans to travel or play there. Some of the stuff that's been purportedly thrown on the field. I want to know from you, what was your experience like in the stands in El Salvador and in Honduras. I mean, on like the macro level, 
I could see where they might get that impression. Like in El Salvador, when Gio Reyna was taking that corner kick, you saw the stuff hitting the fence and splashing. Like it was clearly rattling him. You're like, this is not stuff that's supposed to happen here. So it's really unexpected. Um, in El in Honduras, uh, you saw things getting thrown at the benches late in the game um, from the home fans. For on a micro level, like for me personally. I can't say enough good things about how we were treated down there. Um, the fans inside the stadium in both countries were gracious. I mean, El Salvador, they saw us walking in, started clapping. Like half the stadium was <laughs> clapping for us as we're walking in. And we had guards and everything like that. There was security around us. But at no point was anyone ever really getting in our face. They wanted to take pictures with us. They wanted to trade things. And, I mean, the scoreline in El Salvador really didn't lead to a lot of um, intensity. Uh, it was kind of like a dull game. And Honduras, I think we got hit with stuff after the first goal. I couldn't really tell. I was too busy losing my mind. Um, mm -hmm. But for the most part, yeah, there were fences separating the fans from us with barbed wire at the top, but like through the fence, we were taking pictures with them and everyone was smiling and fist pounds and like congratulations and things like that. Like I never felt unsafe. I never felt intimidated. It was just, if anything, I was just intimidated by like the entire environment where it's like all of these people in the stadium are passionately about what's going on right now. And it's like sometimes in the U.S., you're just not getting that vibe. Um, so it's really cool being somewhere where, like, this is the most important thing in the world right now to these people. Yeah, I, I think that lines up a lot with what I had mentioned earlier in the show. So I, I appreciate you providing your perspective as well so people don't think that I, you know, that I just made this up, that these people were, were fine and giving lie. a standing ovation. So it was great. Um, There's, it's on YouTube. There's a YouTube clip. I'll, I'll send it over to you. Yeah, for sure. So these trips are very quick in, in timing because of the nature of the window, three matches in seven days. But we still got to do a few things. So uh, you mentioned the power chicken. So I know there's going to be one of your stories, but give people a highlight uh, that you had from El Salvador and then also from Honduras. Uh, from El Salvador, uh, the night before party we had, was it a place called Chapultepec? It was Cerveceria Chapultepec. Um and every drink on the menu was a dollar thirty nine. Every American. drink on the menu American. was a dollar thirty nine. Let me repeat that. Uh, it was a great time, very cost effective time. Um, but we didn't really venture out too far from the hotel. I mean, they recommended that we not just because those cities are known for not necessarily being the safest. Um, but in daylight, it was fine. All the people we met were cool. El Salvador, we did pass like the most ball and pizza hut I've ever seen on the way to the bar. Uh, didn't get a chance to partake, but uh, that was cool. And for Honduras, I know we had a, you were there, you got in a little bit late, but you were able to take in the aura that is power chicken. Explain to the people what power chicken is. Power chicken. Like I can't tell if it's a fast food place or just like a chain restaurant. I don't know, but they specialize in chicken, and the logo is a power is like a superhero chicken, like 
it's a caricature. It's amazing. Um, but the food was super good. I got some fried chicken, uh, some rotisserie chicken, and some ribs. Just all of it bomb. Like it was just surreal going in there because I know you guys ordered the night before, like when I had just got in. Um, and I ended up going like the day of the game. So I went in there by myself. And I mean, I know a little Spanish, like muy poquito, but like that Duolingo owl has not gotten me enough. So I go in there and the only thing I want to point out is I am so happy. Like it was so comfortable going to these games, knowing that these countries were taking COVID so seriously. Uh, pretty much, I mean, you needed to be vaccinated to get into the stadiums. Uh, everywhere you went, everyone was wearing masks. You walk into a place, they were giving you hand sanitizer, taking your temperature, like full marks to both these countries for taking the pandemic very seriously still. Um, but I walk into Power Chicken, they take my temperature, they make me take hand sanitizer, and they give me like a number, like you'd get at a deli. And I'm like, I have no idea what I'm supposed to do here. So like they <laughs> had like a waiting area. So I went and sat in the corner and I actually got online and ordered it online. And I sat there for like 10 minutes, like waiting to hear like my order number or anything like that. So I ended up going up to the counter and they got me sorted. I took my power chicken and I went back to the hotel. It was delicious. But moral of the story is A, power chicken rocks. B, I need to learn more Spanish. Well, we can always learn more Spanish. We have a couple of qualifiers coming up. I know you're going to be going to a lot of them down the road. So the last question I have for you, there's a lot of people who, probably didn't go to El Salvador or Honduras because of some of the intimidation factor that you kind of had to fight through, right? I assume it's your, I believe it was your first time in both countries. Yes. Uh, So you kind of had to fight through an intimidation factor on some level to make that leap and go. So for those people who are on the fence for future trips, future away qualifiers, give them your reason on why they should fight through that intimidation factor, make the leap and and do it. I mean, for me, like I've been going to, U.S. games for 10 years now. You can really only go to Ohio so many times. Um, so you you want to mix it up. You want new experiences. I know it's tough right now with COVID, and that's completely understandable. This might not be the best time to be traveling. But also you're looking at the 2026 World Cup where we're hosting. So we're not qualifying. And with the expanded World Cup, you don't know what World Cup qualifying is going to look like when you get to the 2030 cycle. So this is really the time where you can make these trips and get these experiences. And I mean, the unique aspect of it is going to a road game. I mean, we're North American sports fans. Like we've got our NFL teams and whatever. Like you've probably gone to see your team on the road and the experience there, it's, it's nice. It's definitely unique, but it's not quite what it's like going in when it comes to na- international soccer and national teams and going to another country where they're rooting on their national team and you're the opponent, you know? Um, it's definitely a unique experience being in a country where they're playing your anthem and you're the only one singing and they're playing their anthem and the entire stadium is screaming lyrics it's just a surreal experience and as an american like you understand you look around the country and it's like you know that we 
there are issues with America in general. When you take these trips, it's almost like a a sense of diplomacy where you're going and you're meeting these people. And when they're thinking, oh, this is an American, you get to be that representation. You're there rooting for a national team like they're rooting for their national team. You're not threatening them. You guys are just there to have a good time. And it makes you feel good about who you are and who you're rooting for when you're rolling with your team like that. That's awesome. Uh, those of you out there, Eric Schmitz, again, the co-host of the World of CONCACAF podcast, alongside myself and Jonathan Slate. We will have our own episode out on that program at some point in the next few days as we do our recap of the window for all the teams in the octagonal. But Eric, before you go, why don't you tell the folks out there where you can find yourself in that podcast? Uh, well, the main place you can find me, uh, I run the Twitter for the World of Concaf podcast. That is at podcacaf, and it's exactly as it sounds, pod, P-O-D, cacaf. Um, just, we're always covering whatever's going on in the region. Um, I've got my own Twitter that you guys don't need to know, um, but make sure you like, subscribe. You guys don't need to see my tweets about the bills. It's fine. <laughs> I put uh, some money on the bills, so so go bills. Go Buffalo. Um, don't trust yes, them uh, ever. Don't ever uh, trust them. We're already in that boat. But uh, but Eric, uh, again, give the show a follow at Podcacaf. Like, and subscribe, rate, review, you know. And Eric is always there. And again, anything that has to do with Concacaf, Eric is on it. So Eric, you're the man, my buddy, my brother. Uh, we will talk soon. Thank you so much for having me on. Love the pod. My man. That was Eric Schmitz of the World of CONCACAF podcast, my partner in crime around this CONCACAF region. Again, the World of CONCACAF podcast is available wherever you listen to this podcast. So follow that show on Twitter and Instagram at podcast, P-O-D-C-A-C-A-F. P-O-D-C-A-C-A-F. So I appreciate my man, Eric coming on to this show that is going to do it for episode 60 of the stars and stripes FC podcast. Thanks again to my buddy, Eric Schmitz for joining me this week. And thank you all so much for listening as always. Make sure you subscribe to this podcast rates and reviews are awesome and really help. So five stars. If you like what you're hearing for any questions, drop me a line at sssfcpodcast at gmail.com. The next episode will be the mailbag episode. We wanted to do it on this one, but we decided to space it out. So look out for that in a couple of days. So until then, take care.